And turn with me or listen on as I read Acts chapter 12, verse 25, to chapter 13, verse 12. So one of those times the chapter headings didn't quite get it uh, right, and just remember the chapter headings and verses uh, have no inspired value, so I have no difficulty saying that they are wrong. Chapter uh, 12, verse 25. It's the beginning of a new heading. Hear God's word. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bargesus, who was uh, with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his Name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you have uh, have given us this account of the apostles, the acts of the apostles and of the early church. And of the ministry that they had through, throughout the world. And we ask you, Lord, that now by the preaching this text might be opened up to us. And that you would illumine it for our sakes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've had several indications of the beginnings of the Gentile mission. Whether uh, the evangelism... Uh, of the Ethiopian or of Cornelius and his household or the establishment of uh, the church in Antioch. Uh, And so in a sense, I feel like I keep repeating myself, the the beginnings of the Gentile mission. Well, here in another sense, I'm I'm saying it again, uh, though in a different way, each time in a different way. We've read of the Gentile mission begun in earnest with the church being established in Antioch. Now there was an actual church outside of Judea, though it was in the same, it was in the same uh, landmass. That will be important to note in a moment. Uh, so we read that in chapter 11, and we had the sense in chapter 12 
something like Luke saying, well, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, he tells us what was happening there. We, we considered that last time. At the end of that chapter, in verse 25, which we, is the beginning of our text this evening, we read that Paul and Barnabas, having completed their mission, that is, they gathered funds for the Jerusalem church, they brought it to the Jerusalem church, they completed that mission, and Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, which would become the base uh, of their missionary endeavors. It would become the base of the Gentile mission, the gospel spreading outside of Judea. Luke also notes that they took John Mark with them and that Paul and Barnabas or Saul and Barnabas were among the leaders of that congregation. They were among the five leaders. He says prophet and teachers, we might say elders of that congregation. They were the leaders. And it was there as these five leaders and probably the church along with them were uh, we read ministering to the Lord. The sense is. That they were worshiping God and fasting too. While they were doing this, that the Holy Spirit revealed to these prophets his will for the two of them. Verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Having received this message. They again devote themselves to prayer and fasting, which is it's a good practice. You see, they're praying and fasting before the call comes. They pray and fast and then they send them in. Let me just commend that as a good uh, practice. So often in the OPC, we treat uh, the sending of a missionary, the calling of a minister or the ordination as a, as a period of feasting. I won't say that's wrong, but let me also commend uh, the practice of fasting at such times. We've sought the Lord. We found him. His will has been made clear. Let us seek him still. That's what we have. The picture we have. Well, having done that, once again, they lay hands on them and they send them off. Uh, one question we have is how this was revealed to them or, or excuse me, how much was revealed to them? It was revealed through the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophets in those days. But how much was revealed? Well, in truth, it isn't altogether clear. In other words, these men were to go, but what were they to do? Luke doesn't tell us, and it isn't clear whether the Spirit at that time told them either. But uh, the sense is something like, uh, go on your way, and they went. The work he had given them uh, was that of the Gentile mission. We know that. But how they went about it, it seems, was to some extent left to their own discretion. And it's often like that when a man is called to the mission field or if he's called to the ministry. All the details aren't made clear. There's a general sense of the calling. But the point is now it was time to begin the work of evangelizing the nations. And so we read in verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This is the beginning of the first missionary journey. I won't say again it's the beginning of the Gentile mission. We've established that. But now the missionary journeys have begun. And as you know in, in Acts, or I hope you know, there's three missionary journeys. This is the beginning of the first of these. And it's, it's, it's these three missionary journeys that will now dominate the narrative of Acts. Remember what I said about the same landmass. If you look in the back of your Bible, you'll see, uh, I think every Bible has a map of Paul's missionary Journeys. You'll see that the gospel had spread north of Judea into Syria in Antioch. But now you might say that 
they were venturing off into foreign countries. That is to say, they were going overseas. They actually got in a boat and traveled to the island of Cyprus, which was their first destination. Again, you can look at the map and see uh, a pretty, pretty clear picture of that if you like. Now, what they do in, on the island of Cyprus is they go, as one commentator puts it, on a general preaching tour. Uh, and we can't help if, if we know the history at all of the First Great Awakening, uh, but think of George Whitfield and his preaching tours, uh, especially as he went by boat uh, to America and then back to Britain and back and forth he went throughout his life until it ended. It's the same picture here. And so they arrive on the island of Cyprus and they go preaching from east to west. They go across the entire island, beginning in Salamis on the east coast, then preaching throughout the island until they reach the west coast and the town of Paphos. And that's as far as the narrative takes us at this point. There are certain things that we notice about the narrative before we come to what I would call spiritual lessons. The first is that in Salamis, the first destination, they preach the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Plural. So this metropolitan city had at least enough Jews and God fearers in it to have several synagogues. And we see the general practice of Paul and Barnabas established here in their first stop of the first missionary journey, which is to preach to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We'll see that momentarily. We do well to remember in including the Gentiles, there was no desire on the part of the apostles. And let there be no desire in our own hearts to exclude the Jews. In fact, Paul's eagerness and desire for their salvation uh, is more than evident in Romans, as we've seen. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 I desire to preach the gospel for it's the power of God to save to the Jew first, also to the Greek. We see that reflected in this practice. And we see how he felt about his fellow countrymen in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. His desire, his heart's desire was for their salvation. We're not surprised, therefore, to find him going to the synagogues and preaching to them and evangelizing uh, them. But we also see that salvation is for the Gentile or the Greek as well. That is the non-Jew. And this comes out more clearly at the other end of the preaching tour. Now, I won't say that he didn't evangelize Greeks uh, in the first destination and only in the last. I'll only say that in each town, uh, Luke was emphasizing a certain aspect of his ministry. Well, if in the first town he evangelized the Jews, the other side of the picture, on the other side of the island, on the west side, in Paphos, we find his ministry to non-Jews. In particular, a certain sorcerer, uh, now, don't be confused here. I admit I was a little confused myself, so let me clear up the confusion. Uh, Bar-Jesus is Elemis, in case there was uh, any confusion there. So the sorcerer is the same man in both cases, though he had two names. Now, this man was, in fact, a Jew, Luke tells us. Bar-Jesus, or as he's later called, Elemis. And uh, he was associated with a non-Jew... The proconsul Sergius Paulus. And it was he who calls on these men to preach to him. And they do so. He sought to hear the word of God. That's how Luke puts it. Now, did he do so in a public setting? I don't think so. He may have. He may have requested it there or more likely simply in his own private quarters, as I remember George Whitfield also would do from time to time. He would have important persons invite him to preach uh, to them in their own homes. And so he would do it. It's something like that here. 
Uh, I imagine these two men, along with John Mark, preaching to a small gathering of people, though I confess I cannot be sure. Well, it's a little bit cliche, and I... Well, I, even now I hesitate to do this, but I'm going to, I'm going to reference Lord of the Rings from the pulpit. There is a scene... Uh, there is a scene in the movie, it's also in the book, but it comes out in a certain flavor in the movie, where Gandalf approaches Theoden, and he breaks the spell of Wormwood. Uh, was that his name, Wormwood? Do I have that right? I'm getting nods. All right. I'm not a Lord of the Rings expert. So, well, he, break, he breaks the spell of the sorcerer. It's something like that here. In fact, it's an amazing parable, uh, uh, parallel. And by the way, that's all I'll say about that illustration. But we see the preachers preaching to the king, so to speak, hearing the message and the sorcerer hearing it, too, by his side, seeking to oppose it, lest his spell be broken over his master and he be out of a job. Well, the scene ends quite dramatically. Elymas withstood them or Bargesus seeking to dissuade the proconsul from believing. And Saul, in turn, also called Paul, and from here on, that is all he will be called, opposed him in return. As Peter had done before with Simon Magnus, and by the way, I'm going to have more to say about that a little bit later. We find the apostles preaching to converts, but also opposing men in their ministries. And we see how God deals with the sorcerer and the whole Uh, blinding him, and the whole episode ends with the proconsul believing, not only when he saw, not only when he heard the gospel, but when he saw the power of the gospel to close the mouths of its opponents. Well, let me come now to spiritual lessons. The first of which I indicated in the morning sermon I would do in the evening sermon, and that is, Uh, The whole business of being sent, the relationship of the church to her preachers and her missionaries. Look how often it's put this way. Uh, They fasted and prayed and laid hands on them and they sent them away. Verse three. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and so on. Uh, We have the exact language that we have in Romans chapter 10. Let me read that again. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how, the, how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Well, I said very little about the sending this morning. Let me say something about it here. We have a very obvious instance of the sending. And Luke is very clearly highlighting it for us. He's giving us a sense of precisely what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 10 in real time. It's important for us to note in our burden for preaching and for preachers, which hopefully we have. Hopefully we have a desire for that, to see that in the churches. Hopefully we have a desire to see converts as a result of the preaching and, and Christians built up in their faith as a result of the preaching. But, it, but let me just say that no man simply decides to be a preacher. You see, it's very often the case That a man is converted and he imagines immediately he's called to the ministry. Sometimes yes, but sometimes no. This isn't something that a man simply decides to do. That isn't how the ministry works or the the missionary enterprise works. It works like this. A man is sent. 
That's the biblical picture. That's the imagery that we must lay hold of. He's often sent, if you think uh, of, a, of uh, a man like Moses. Moses was sent. Uh, so many of the preachers we find throughout history were sent with a large degree of reluctance. And yet there is a compulsion, there is a necessity laid upon him by God and the church. And so he goes. And so, well, I've already said it, but let me expound it. What does the sending involve? It involves two things. There are two agents by which a man is sent. The first is God himself, by which I refer to the internal call of the Holy Spirit. That is part of the sending, not just the church, you see. Don't, uh, don't restrict it to that. No, Luke highlights, so being sent by the Holy Spirit. God is the one who sends his messengers. And we must begin with that always. But the same Holy Spirit who was making it clear to the particular man and or the men in this case also makes it clear to the church, which we see here. He was revealing his will uh, not only internally to Paul and Barnabas and the way that he does this, by the way, you ask, well, what does the internal call what does it involve? It, it is a sense of restraint, a sense of necessity which is laid upon a man. God is calling this man to preach. And, and he has this, this sense of, well, that he, he has no freedom in the matter. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Not only that, I don't want to put it in purely negative terms. God is also giving the man a desire, an earnest desire to preach and to share the message with others, but it also includes the element of uh, of constraint by the Lord. That's that's the side of the man. We get the picture uh, here that the church is sensing it along with the man. You see, not only does the man sense it, but so too do others. They begin, as a result of this, to urge the man to the work. I'm saying that God makes it clear to the man and to the church together. And you see how this happens here. Neither side is too hasty. Both are made aware of something from God. It is he who chooses his ministers, his missionaries, and reveals it to the man and to the church. And thus it is that men are sent by the church. This is a very important corrective to a highly individualized form of Christianity that has taken hold of the American church. There is no such thing as a preacher who has not been sent, who has not received his commission both from God and from the church. You see, even the Apostle Paul himself, a man who was assured and persuaded of his call from God, he didn't receive it from men. He makes that very clear in Galatians. He was the Apostle of God, not of men. And yet even he would not go until he had received such a commission from the church. And then having completed his work, he returned to that particular church in Antioch and was sent off again. His call was not from men. It was from God. And yet even he was sent. And so we see his words in Romans chapter 10. Well, and he would not go until he was sent. Let me add that. His words in Romans 10 about how can someone preach unless he was sent. We see those words in a new light. That's not just a general policy that he uh, is giving there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That is his own personal policy. 
Now, you might be thinking this, so let me say something about it. There are times in the history of the church when the church herself is so corrupt that the church will not recognize the men of God, the men that the Holy Spirit is calling, the men who are sent of God. And so there are times, there have been times in the history of the church, and we may see such times again in our own days, when men are called to preach against the church, or even have been persecuted by the church. But even then, you see, as for instance in the case of Martin Luther, he may have been persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church, but he was also urged on by other Christians to do what he did. In other words, you see, There is no such thing as a man, a preacher who is a preacher unto himself. Luther didn't say, neither did Paul. I act alone. No, even the great Martin Luther depended on other Christians. He needed their blessing and encouragement. He needed to be sent in this way. He needed other Christians to acknowledge that God was calling him to the work. And so that is the biblical principle. And that is my first spiritual lesson. That the preacher, the missionary is someone who is sent. By whom? As John Stott puts it, God himself sends his men through the church, which captures the balance very well. My second point is the need for prayer. This is something of a theme in Acts. We find that Luke is constantly highlighting that the early church uh, was a praying church. Another way that we could put this is that they were constantly seeking God or they were waiting on God. You know, the book of Acts is a book full of action. It's the most action-packed book in the Bible, I think. Maybe you could say the, the book of Mark. But I would say the book of Acts. And yet, constantly we find that they were waiting. They were praying. They were not rushing. They were not doing things too soon. Things did not happen all at once. And Luke goes out of his way to make this clear. Again, we find them praying and fasting. So the call comes upon these men in the church. Again, they're found praying and fasting. There are periods in the life of the church, Luke is telling us, God is telling us, of preparation. Periods of waiting on the Lord. And even once his will is made clear, as I keep saying, again, even then, prayer and fasting. Of course, they reach a point when the action happens very suddenly. But these things take time, Luke is saying, and I'm saying. And so in our desire for action, for things to happen, we must remember the importance of prayer. Also fasting. When we are looking uh, for God to make things clear to us in his own way. That's what we must be doing. We must be seeking him. We must be waiting on him. How does he do so? Well, here's an instance. He does so by calling men to the mission field. You say, what are we to do about missions? Well, we ought to pray for missions. And how does God answer that prayer? Well, he does so by calling men. He does so by making it clear to the men and uh, to the church. But you see, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. And Luke keeps telling us that. And I, I want to keep telling you that. It's only as a result of the church seeking this from God. And so my admonition is always the same. If you're looking for God to do something or to use us for his own glory, 
You must seek him in prayer. That's the second lesson. The third is this. Once that call comes from heaven, once he has made his will clear, as for instance in calling a man to the mission field or to the ministry, then he must go. There's a time for waiting, so there's a time for going. And perhaps at such a time things are not altogether clear. It doesn't matter. There is a degree of faith that God requires of all his servants. That includes the church that's sending and the man who's going. Also, a degree of wisdom and discretion. These men consulted the church. They consulted together. They didn't go on their own. You see three men going out together. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Nothing too hasty. Nothing too imprudent. And yet, all of it done with tremendous zeal. When these men set about the work, they did great things for the Lord. They evangelized with an energy that amazes us. Well, as a fourth point, we find Luke telling us that when such men are sent by God, men who are called by God, men who are sent by the church, they will succeed. The whole story of Acts is the story of the success of the early church. The work which he is calling these men to will not be in vain. That's the story of the church then. It's the story of the church today. The work of those who are called to the ministry will always generate some interest. It may not generate a lot of interest, but it will always generate some interest. They will see conversions. Luke is always pointing to the successes of these missionaries on the mission field. But the other thing that I would note that Luke is saying that is sure to come is opposition. I'm saying that's sure to come. We see both things here. And the missionary goes forth, sent, fully expecting both. And especially as we look at Paul here, we see that he is prepared to deal with both. To one man, the proconsul, he preaches the gospel in the most inviting manner. And as a result of his ministry of preaching to him, he is converted. He believes the gospel. He becomes a Christian. And yet, do you notice the other side? The other man, the sorcerer, he condemns him entirely as Peter had done before. And so we already notice that Luke is highlighting this for us as something that the apostles, the preachers, the missionaries in those days had to do. And I wonder if we honestly think it will be different for us. May I suggest, in light of the, the example of the apostles and of the early church, that the preacher, and even the Christian, I would say, must be prepared to do both always. He must be prepared uh, to evangelize, to invite sinners unto Christ in the most inviting way he can. He ought to be winsome. That's the language. But he isn't always winsome. You see, at times, he is prepared and he feels the need to condemn the enemies of, of God and of the gospel in the severest possible terms. He stands ready to do both things. I'm reminded again of John the Baptist here. So much of his ministry of preaching was a ministry of condemning the false religion of his own day. I wonder if he would be considered winsome. Or of our Lord himself in pronouncing those awful woes. You see, you find both men doing both things. Inviting sinners to be saved, but also condemning the enemies of the gospel. 
And I wonder, have we forgotten this? Has the church today uh, lost its will to do this? We're so, uh, we're so eager to win Christ, I wonder, have we forgotten the other part that Luke is so eager to tell us about? Do you see that Luke here makes it the better, the bigger part, as he did in the case of Peter and Simon Magnus, going into detail about the condemnation of a false preacher, a false evangelist. There has to be zeal for both things. That's what I'm saying. And what I'm also saying is that that is what God puts in the heart of his servants in sending them. He gives them a heart to invite the lost, but he also gives them a heart to condemn the false teachers. And that is also what the church must must expect in sending them, whether ministers or missionaries. The minister, let me say again, must be winsome, but he, he won't always be winsome. Sometimes he will be very severe in condemning sin. But do you also notice how Luke mentions that as he's doing this, as he's condemning this sorcerer, this false prophet, that Paul experiences a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was only, in fact, as he was freshly full of the Spirit that he pronounced such things upon the sorcerer. So really, we might say it was the Spirit himself who stood behind such, such boldness. And let me say, too, that is, that is also part of the sending. If God sends and appoints men to a certain task, he will equip them along the way. You see, the minister, the missionary, doesn't just look for uh, the fullness of the Spirit when he's sent. He's looking for it all along. Perhaps this was a moment where we find Paul as he speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He was in weakness, fear, and much trembling. He didn't know what to do, perhaps. And yet we find that God makes him bold as a lion, full of his spirit, in denouncing false religion. And my message to the church is that he'll do that today, even as he did it then. I will, I'm not saying that he will enable me or you to pronounce blindness upon others. I'm not saying that. No, for such things as he did in the days of the apostles and the prophets, he does not do today. But he will give you, and I pray he will give me the courage in the fullness of the spirit to denounce the false teacher, to resist him, to recognize his error, to call his sin by name, even to condemn him. I don't mean in the ultimate sense. Only God can do that. I mean in the relative sense. For the same spirit that filled Paul in that moment is in every single believer today. And I wonder if you believe that. I do. And he remains the same spirit of power and of truth and of zeal. And do you see as I close how such preaching and such a demonstration at that time is what ultimately convinced this proconsul to believe? The narrative closes like this. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. There are some people who are apt to question, was this a true conversion? But there's no indication here that it wasn't. The whole sense we get here is that as one man stood condemned, so another man believed. And it's often like that. I, I spoke of the mystery of preaching this morning. It's an aroma of death to one, so it's an aroma of life to another. How clearly we see this here. How clearly we see it in our own, uh, in our own days. But do you realize that 
what convinced him, what made the gospel sink deep down into his heart, what, what caused him to believe was that he saw both things in Paul. He saw not only a man who preached the gospel to him, but he also saw a man who opposed the false teaching of that sorcerer who was deceiving him. And we remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so it happened here. And so let us always remember in all that we do, whether in sending ministers or missionaries, that that is the ultimate goal here. It isn't just that the gospel might be preached or false religion opposed. The ultimate goal is that men might be caused to believe and to cry upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And so we, we return to Paul's words in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, and we see them come true in the case of the proconsul. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they uh, have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Well, here a preacher was sent, and so he was enabled to hear, and so he believed, and so he called upon the name of the Lord, and he was saved. And we rejoice, therefore, to see this man converted, this Gentile, along with the Jews and brought into the church. And we rejoice equally that the preaching of the gospel and alongside that I put the bold witness of so many uh, of those who have preached the gospel. Has produced the same faith in our own hearts, if if indeed it has. And we are encouraged once more. To pray as these men did, especially that God might call and send forth such preachers in our own day. Amen. And let us uh, return praise to God by standing together and singing as a closing hymn, hymn 419. Please stand, hymn 419.